and welcome to the Siemens Security by Design podcast. I'm your host, Lee Harrison, Product Marketing Director for the Tessent Safety and Security product line within Siemens EDA. Our aim with this podcast series is to explore the world of safety and security requirements and technology for IC design. I'll be talking to experts from all over the globe who are deeply involved from both a technology and a research perspective, giving you a truly unfiltered view on what we are doing and what we need to do to make ICs safe and secure for critical applications. Today, my guest is David Rogers, MBE. David is a cybersecurity specialist and CEO of Copper Horse Limited, a software and security company based in Windsor in the UK. Copper Horse is currently focused on product security for the Internet of Things, as well as the future of automotive cybersecurity. David chairs the Fraud and Security Group at the GSMA. He authored the UK's Code of Practice for Consumer IoT Security in collaboration with UK government and industry colleagues, and is a member of the UK's Telecom Supply Chain Diversity Advisory Council. Hi, David. Hi, Lee. Thanks for having me. To get started, so we've worked on cybersecurity technology together in the past. And one thing that stands out to me is that you are working on a daily basis with actual cybersecurity attacks. So not just from an analysis perspective, looking at what the attack landscape could look like and how to detect and mitigate against those attacks, but you're seeing firsthand actual attacks and the impact of those attacks on a, on a daily basis, which leads me into my first question, which I'm sure is always something the listeners will ask and be thinking about, which is cybersecurity is a necessity. We all know that. That's kind of a given. And its complexity is increasing, and it's a big problem to solve. But actually, how real is the risk of that on a daily basis? How concerned do I need to be? And is all of this security protection and all of this security technology just there to protect against the one in a million chances of attack? It's a very valid question. And, and as you say, it's something that I do hear a lot. I guess the, the problem is, is that cybersecurity as a topic lumps everything together from all different types of domains, whether it's industry domains or particular things that we're trying to secure, and it puts it all in one bucket. And it makes it very difficult then to explain to people about the different types of targets or the different types of attacker or the different objectives that that attacker has. And then it just puts this big, scary question mark and exclamation mark over, over cybersecurity. And it's easy to become cynical, especially if something hasn't happened to your organization. And I guess, you know, to use a hospital analogy, you know, it's like saying, why do I need a hospital? I've never been sick. And also to extend that from a sort of cybersecurity specialism perspective, do all cybersecurity specialists need to be brain surgeons? It's really, I think, becoming somewhat damaging, actually, to understanding cybersecurity if we lump everything together. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is everything is now connected. So cybersecurity as a discipline or cyberspace is now defined by government as all of those things, so including the physical objects, the different types of networks, different type of radios, it's not just all about internet or IP communications anymore. It's the collective. 
because everything is interconnected and all these different industries are connected, that is what makes up cyberspace. And an attacker isn't concerned as to whether somebody uses the internet to transmit this or whether they use uh, some obscure other radio protocol. All they're bothered about is what's their target, what's their objective, is it to steal money, whatever. And then they'll take the path of least resistance to get to that. So if, for example, you take a car and there's money stored on that car, that's going to attract in people who want to steal that money or to defraud the user or to dupe the user to steal that money in some way. They don't care that it's a car. They just want the money. When we talk about these bad actors, who are they? Are they all technical experts? Are they everywhere? What, what, sort, of, what sort of people are we talking about here? So what people will usually see in the press, you know, the claims of sophisticated cyber attackers, actually half the time these aren't sophisticated attacks in any way, but there are levels to which the people attack things. So you can take it from the ordinary user who is vested in attacking their own thing for whatever reason and maybe defrauding the company that they bought a service from up to the very top, which would be nation state attacks. In between all of that, and and encompassing those two, you have different objectives and different needs for the attacker. So what are they looking to do? Are they looking to steal data? Are they looking to modify something? Are they, you know, is it a student looking to modify their own records? You know, this is why I kind of put cybersecurity as an art rather than a science, because there are so many different factors involved and so many uncertainties, but we have to deal with all of it. So as a defender, you have to take on all of those levels and decide at which level you, you're going to set your security and how you keep these people out. And that is not a trivial challenge. And it's very easy to jump to the conclusion that you know, we're, we're putting too much security in and, and we'll never get attacked. But that, I think, is trivializing it. Yeah. And I mean, and how easy is it for the kind of average person to kind of start to acquire the technology needed to do these attacks? Is it something that is really hard to get hold of or or, or can you kind of buy them off the, the internet as such? So you get a variety of things. You get people who will be self-taught, who will become quite well-skilled at what they're doing and they might use some tools that they found on the internet or they might be taught through YouTube tutorials there's been a general commoditization of hacking tooling that is often the same tools that are used for penetration testing. So there is a sort of dual use here. There are lots of different things out there in different domains. So if we take the criminal domain, for example, and you say, how, e- how easy is it for me to break into a car and steal it? I would say relatively easy, but that's, again, sort of trivializing it. So on the face of it, it's very easy. Because if I'm criminally minded, I can go and buy the right tool right now and have it shipped to me within 24 hours. So if you take the police, they would say, that is too easy. It should not be possible for somebody to be able to get the tools that enable them to steal a modern car in seconds to be able to get that tool within 24 hours. And and I would agree with them. But that also trivializes the effort that has gone into creating that tool. So there's this whole pyramid behind it which really goes back to embedded systems hacking now. And up right up at the top is the person who is reverse engineering the hardware of that car and the networks of that car 
to be able to understand how to steal it. But it's in their interests at the top of the pyramid uh, to help to commoditize it further down the line. So we see this in all sorts of sectors. We see it in the mobile phone domain with things like SIM unlocking tools and IMEI changing tools, even to things like pin stealing and the fronts of cash machines and so on. There's a whole supply chain of business that's behind that that is that is also globalized these days. You know, they all share their knowledge and everything and manufacturing's a lot cheaper. It's just the bar has come down quite a lot. Yeah. If we focus on automotive, we, we know the complexity and the amount of contents of the electronics in vehicles today is is massively increasing. And and that includes the connectivity as well. So you talked about being able to kind of buy the tools and have them shipped. But actually with connected cars, they're all on the internet anyway, so you can potentially get kind of direct access. So in that perspective, do you think we're keeping up with the pace of things, with the the security technology? In other words, what are your thoughts on whether we're going to be able to deliver the right security solutions to address the needs of the software-defined vehicle. I mean, the software-defined vehicle is one of those buzzwords now, but ultimately what it boils down to is it's still a hardware platform regardless of whatever software is running on it, and those hardware platforms have got to be protected against being hacked. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two sides to this, I think, really, and automotive is one of those industries that carries a lot of legacy. So another one would be the airline industry, where traditionally it's not been connected. In the case of airlines, obviously, there are a lot of other physical security measures as well that that they benefit from. But with cars, they've concentrated on functional safety and they've concentrated on reliability without necessarily having to worry about people tampering. And then as time's gone along, they've sort of organically become connected. So somebody would connect a telematics control unit to the existing CAN bus network of a car or a rich head unit with Wi-Fi and with a SIM card in it will be connected. And that's great because you can just slot them in. But that increases the attack surface and the FET surface quite a lot. And what we've seen is vulnerabilities that affect web browsers, for example, are being introduced into the car because there's a web browser on the head unit. And then that allows for a sort of pivot attack into the vehicle through other insecurity. So overall, what we've got is... In each one of those different domains, there are vulnerabilities, and there are too many vulnerabilities that aren't being fixed. And so when you chain those together, the attacker can traverse that in in a number of different ways. There's lots and lots of different routes they could take, and they can pick the vulnerabilities that they want to exploit and to achieve their objective, which may be, I don't know, you know, getting to the brakes of a car or something. Again, it's about what's the attacker looking to do. But as we go forward, I think the other side to this is that cybersecurity is being addressed by governments, by industry worldwide. And we also we, we have a good understanding of what good looks like. So we know where the problems are. We know how to tackle them. And so certain technology that exists, for example, secure hardware, has been designed for some time now. And we can transfer that into the, into the automotive industry, into other industries, such that you have a trusted platform to work from, a foundation of trust, and you can build up from that. And from that, you get a lot of additional benefits. Caveat that by saying that actually there's still a lot of legacy. So to get rid of that legacy takes some time and it takes standards changes and things like that. 
And so bringing that to market, there'll be a window of time that can be exploited by the hacking community where we haven't fully deployed all of the security that we would like to do. And of course, we don't know what the future is going to bring. We don't know what kind of what, what future attacks look like. We can theorize about them, but we shouldn't be naive enough to think that we would secure something entirely and that, that our job would be done. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of goes back to the fundamentals of certainly what this podcast is all about in terms of it's security by design. And what, what you're saying is there's a ton of technology in vehicles that is is legacy it doesn't have the security built in because it, it didn't need to have that built in when it was originally designed. And we're kind of trying to stick band-aids on things. I mean, certainly within Siemens, we're looking at technology that you're familiar with this technology as well, that it protects the whole, is implemented in one part of the vehicle system, but it protects the whole vehicle system, including the the legacy technology as well. So so it's all about this this security by design rather than and like I say, just trying to stick band-aids on on the stuff that's there, been there forever. Yeah, and, and half the battle, of course, is knowing where the problems lie. Once you know that, actually, you can do something about it. And I think the problem has been before that people were just kind of blindsided by these issues and they weren't aware that they were there. So once we know where they are, we can we can kind of put cotton wool around them a little bit. So to your sort of band-aid analogy, we'll actually it may not necessarily need to be a band-aid we could build something a bit more robust that actually allows that legacy functionality to continue but is very strict about how it operates and is very carefully monitored so what are your thoughts on how the governments are addressing all of these issues and concerns are the governments keeping up with the the rate of technical change i think they're getting better obviously there are certain countries where they've taken it really, really seriously and they've engaged really well with industry and they've identified particular domains that they need to go after to, to help to solve these issues. And also, I think they generally, I think, are quite good at, uh, at supporting new ideas and new technologies. So, you know, for example, I think governments with autonomous vehicles have actually been falling over themselves to try to improve the legislative process and make things a little bit easier to allow trials and so so on, whilst bearing in mind that security is an issue that needs to be taken seriously. The other thing as well is that some countries, I'll give the example of the UK, have raised uh, you know, cybersecurity or attacks caused by cybersecurity issues to a very high level in terms of government priorities. So it's classed as a tier one national security threat. And what that does essentially unlocks a lot of money to be able to address that. This is a problem that the whole world has. It doesn't matter what country you're in. And I think a lot of countries are talking to each other and they're trying to harmonize what they're doing. And they're harmonizing that through international standards, but also through government policy. And they're working together. In the long term, I think humanity will be the net net beneficiary. And obviously, from a technological perspective, when you think about it, actually, you know, it's all electronics, it's all semiconductors, it's all the same domain. So actually, the solutions are often common, and certainly the security principles are common. So you can reduce the problem space somewhat if you think about it hard. It's not as much of a problem as it looks on the face of it. That's an interesting point about sharing information. We hear about the hacking conferences and all of the research that's going on 
and all of the information that gets shared in, in that kind of environment. But how does that translate to the automotive industry? Because the, the automotive industry in general has been pretty secretive and pretty closed. So do you see the automotive industry opening up and starting to share that kind of information? Yeah, I think it's no secret that in the past, the automotive industry hasn't really understood the security research community and has taken quite an aggressive stance towards security researchers with things like legal threats and so on from some some OEMs. The way that I look at that is it's just a clash of two different worlds. And over time, I think both communities have come to understand each other. The most infamous piece of hacking research that was published was obviously the 2015 hack against Jeep by Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek. And it's interesting because, you know, that did cause governments to wake up. It caused the industry to wake up. Wake up. So arguably you'd say that was a net benefit to us all to have that wake-up call. But at the same time, these types of what we call zero-day issues are even frowned upon in the, the hacking industry now, the hacking world, in that security researchers are expected to responsibly disclose these to companies and companies themselves are expected to acknowledge that and to fix the vulnerabilities. So in some cases in the past, they, they weren't able to fix them, which is probably why they took a quite aggressive stance, stance to it. And also, they were if you think about those manufacturers, they were dealing with all the criminal issues themselves, so they couldn't separate out the criminal activities versus the genuine security researchers who wanted to do some good. I think that is completely changed now, and there's a much better relationship. So some OEMs are running bug bounties. Most of them have uh, coordinated vulnerability disclosure schemes, and I think they understand the need for that security research, and and they're relatively supportive to it. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm starting to see that a little bit. So I'm part of the GAAC, which is the Global Automotive Advisory Council, and that's actually bringing together members of the different OEMs around the same table and sometimes the discussion is a little bit a little bit tense but these guys are starting to share information with each other they realize that's something they they need to be doing so hopefully it's kind of heading in the right direction i notice you've got some some interesting artifacts behind you <laughs> did you want to share what you, uh, I, you you've been digging around by the looks of it <laughs> well it's a couple of things from some of our previous work together actually exactly that's what i that's what i recognize <laughs> so, but some things that we um often explain to people i think to help to illustrate this this challenge that we have so a lot of the hacking research goes on in the criminal space well before any academic research or security research. And so I like to buy some of this equipment. So I'm just holding here what there was called a mileage corrector. And it's an inline device that you put in behind an instrument cluster to remove the cable and you insert this thing in behind the dashboard, basically. And what that's doing is what we call a man-in-the-middle attack. And this highlights one of the biggest problems that we've got with legacy protocols and legacy networks. So the reason that this can work is because there's no way for any device that's sat on that car network to see whether a message is authentic. The message can claim to be from somewhere, so say from the engine ECU or something, but I can just change that data. I can just pretend to, to be that data because there's no integrity protection. There's no encryption on that link at all. And there's nothing monitoring it to check it either. So a lot of these devices are sold quite widely on the internet. They're not very expensive, and 
this goes back to what I was saying about the varying types of attackers. There are multiple types of attacker who would want to use this. So you could imagine some dodgy car dealer that wants to change the mileage to to sell the car for a higher value. But equally, it could be the user who wants to keep their mileage low on, say, I don't know, a Porsche 993 or something like that that's got very good value. And if it goes over 100,000 miles, the value will drop. So you see quite high-end vehicles being attacked with these kind of things. And also, when you remove it, so if you if you had that while you were using the car, when you removed it, nobody would know about it. So there are multiple reasons why somebody would want to use these. And they don't really go that well detected because they're hidden away. And that's just one example of, of something that's a com- commoditized hack that, that's widely available. Part of this issue is about enforcement as well. I'm sure we'll come on to that. But to actually possess these is not criminal. To buy them is not criminal. To use them is. And that presents a lot of challenges for law enforcement and for garages and everyone else. So I think we need a bit more modern thinking about exactly how to enforce and deal with these things. And then the other thing that I want to show you here is is a third-party head unit. So this is just one that I've picked up from Amazon. You could go to any online shop. This runs a version of Android, but it's not an official version of Android. So the Android project is open sourced and anybody can build that. And so a lot of entrepreneurial companies will build that for free and then build quite nice head units. So I can put this head unit in a very old vehicle, but I get Google Maps and I get TV and lots of cool functionality. And actually, I think this cost me about £200. It was very cheap relative to to what an official one would be. And this is quite interesting because it's also connected to the in-car network. So I've got a little box on the back of here which comes with it. And what that does is it translates the messages from the to and from the vehicle to this head unit itself. And there are a bunch of reverse engineers in China who produce these things. It's not official. And of course, there could be, you know, this will never get a software update. It's not official Android. There's lots of vulnerabilities in there. We know that because we've looked at it. So imagine if there was malware that was on there that could then connect through to the vehicle network. And that could actually happen on a more modern vehicle with this third-party head unit. So that, I think, is a a real modern risk. While we're paying attention to the actual inbuilt security, the third-party devices could create additional risk. This goes back to the work that we've, we've done together on adding inbuilt hardware security to the other components of the vehicle. So as you said before, there's there's legacy, there's third party, and they're not so well secured. But if the core components of the vehicle have security built-in that protects the whole system, then at least you can start to protect against these type of things. So being able to, to kind of monitor the traffic on the in-car networks, be able to detect where they're coming from, whether they're authentic or not is is kind of vitally important. Yeah, 100%. And having that sort of layered security model that you could even retrofit. So if I can retrofit a hack to the car, I could retrofit security to cars and that would help. It's a belt and braces approach, you know. We can apply all sorts of security by design, but you do need all of those additional things to to check that actually things are looking normal and that there's no unusual things going on. And, and certainly with some recent car thefts, we've seen quite some quite innovative ways of stealing vehicles that would have been caught if there was monitoring in there. And it seems a shame that maybe the OEMs haven't thought about those types of scenario 
where unusual things happen. But we'll see what happens in the future. The other part of this, and you, you touched on it earlier, is the overall standards. So governments are trying to try to work with this, but there's also the standards bodies. And I know you're you're involved with some of these standards bodies. Are the standards developing quick enough? Because I, I, I know from experience, generally to get these standards moving and to get them out, it's quite an effort from a whole bunch of people. So are the standards keeping pace with the technology? What, what, what do you What do you think? As a standards person, I would like them to be. But the reality is actually, no, they need to modernize as well. And so there is code first standards that that whole conversation comes around uh, on a repeated cycle, which is people would like to build a standard as a thing rather than write down the requirements as must, shall not, should, and may, so on. But uh, the truth is at the moment, the way that we build standards is, as you say, a bunch of experts get in a room together and they go away and they edit documents and they essentially work largely by consensus to build the best thing. And it's up to their brains to work out what the threats are. And often this is five, year be- five years before this thing's ever deployed. So what can actually be implemented can, first of all, not comply with the standard properly. There might be big divergence even when the, device, when the, when the standard is compliant, uh, when the object is compliant. But also the threat might have evolved from the point at which the standard was started. And then on the consensus part, what you end up with consensus often is options and you end up with compromise. So when it comes to security, in some cases, we don't really want to compromise. But what you'll find is often language where they say, oh, you have to build a risk model and you decide as the implementer what what that risk model is and what level of security you can take. And what we've found in those scenarios is actually that's created security weakness because people often implement to the lowest common denominator. And they say, oh, well, that ultimately that wasn't in our, our risk model and threat model when clearly it should have been. So I would like to see more robust standards making in the future. And then also these things do take time. So we need to be thinking about standards as being live standards and constantly evolving, just as we think about product security as being a live thing now and not a static product that it gets software updates in its lifetime, that we should be thinking about standards as well. They shouldn't be going through these archaic change request processes. We need to think about how do we evolve standards and how do security researchers effectively work with standards bodies to get things fixed really quickly, because that is an Achilles heel right now, I think, for future security. Yeah, I think I see this a little bit. I know there's there's some standards out there that are the next revisions are in in process even before the current revisions are are kind of released. The ISO two one four three four standard got released in in twenty twenty one, and I think we'll see some quite significant updates to that in the near future. So I think we're getting there, but it, it, the rate of change and the rate of development of technology is a challenge. Changing gears a little bit. You've seen the amount of money that's being pledged by the various nations with regards to semiconductor development. So you've got the US Chips Act, you've got the EU Chips Act, and and now you've got the UK National Semiconductor Strategy. What do you think about all that? And how is that going to benefit the whole security by design process? Yeah, so it is interesting. And and obviously, there are multiple reasons why those things came into being. I think 
the broad factor is there's a recognition that supply chain security and resilience is 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 critical. Part of it is about a retreat from the sort of globalization of the early 2000s. But even in, for example, a natural disaster scenario, it's probably unwise to have these really focused single points of manufacture or design for certain things that the entire world relies on. So as we saw in the pandemic, there were immense strains on the supply chains. Plus, of course, conflict around the world is going to happen at some point. So I think there's a realization that if we are globally connected, then we need to diversify our supply chains, but also diversify the locales of those. And there's already a recognition of that we've, we've for a long time about geo-redundancy with network services and so on. So I think this is just like a sort of physical geo-redundancy. And then the, on top of that is about future semiconductor design. So hardware-based vulnerabilities, obviously, you know, I'm talking about extremely low-level vulnerabilities we saw with the spectrum meltdown vulnerabilities are very difficult to fix. And we're still living with that now, which has performance cost as well. So there are fundamental issues with semiconductor design that need to be resolved from a security perspective that we never, ever had to think about. And so things like memory safety, things like monitoring, as we've discussed, the next generation of semiconductors need to be designed in a secure way that brings in all of the things that we've learned over the past 30 years particularly and then creates the platform for future fantastic connected products because now we're kind of running at risk a a little bit and obviously these things take a a very long time we look at the way that trusted computing in the sense of trusted execution environments and secure storage the success of those and the success that's brought to security in mobile phones and all types of clever high-end iot devices be a continuation and an enhancement of that. It's definitely very welcome. I look forward to seeing how that money gets allocated in the UK and where the the focus areas are and and across the rest of Europe. We've talked about what we've done in the past. We've talked about what's going on today. So what does the future look like? What do you think, where are we going to be in the next 10 years? And have you got any thoughts on what the challenges are going to be in in 10 years' time? I think we're all living on Mars and driving flying cars again. <laughs> you say that. I mean, I I keep seeing this quote from, from Elon Musk saying that it, certainly when he starts to talk about the full self-driving software within Teslas, and he said, well, actually, it's it's easier to send a rocket to Mars than it is to develop a full self-driving vehicle system. So, so maybe you're right. Maybe we'll give up on the autonomous vehicles and we will disappear off to Mars. Maybe that's the Maybe that's the solution. I think it's nice to have a dream and to set a direction. And I think that's what Tesla have have set out and they've set the ball rolling in terms of investment and for companies to kind of wake up to what the future could look like and for individuals. So, so many universities now are tackling this issue. I think the sort of projections were really overly optimistic and we know that now. But in terms of the compute capability that we have, in terms of what's happening in all different types of domains, whether it's sensor development, semiconductors, and AI, all of those things advancing together, I think will create a sort of tipping point. So, you know, you look at whether we'll reach level five autonomy, so, you know, fully autonomous vehicles, that I think we will, and, and maybe within 10 years. The reason I think that is because if you look at the decisions that we have to make when we're driving down the road, in 
you know, emergency situations or not. That, that's a bounded space. There are a set number of things that can happen and there are a set number of uh, physical environmental scenarios that can happen. It just happens that that is a very large set and computationally it's, it's quite a difficult problem. But we will reach the point where that's not a difficult problem. It is the defined number. It's clearly defined by physics. So I'm of the mind that we will reach full autonomy and it may happen within the next 10 years that will bring about lots and lots of new changes. I think that the things that will maybe delay it will be, for example, deploying physical infrastructure and dealing with the challenges of that as well, because, you know, things will go wrong. Uh, You know, companies will go bust in that process and governments will change and there'll be planning permission issues in, in countries. And it'll be silly things like that, not the actual technology itself. I think the technology will be entirely capable. I think there are a couple of potential black swan events that could cause problems to that. One of them being obviously a breakthrough in quantum computing that leads to the breaking of traditional crypto. And obviously all of our security is built around particularly a public key cryptography. And all of that would have to be replaced. But there are people preparing for that. So there are people who have developed post-quantum algorithms that would be able to defend against quantum computing attacks. So what we need to be doing is preparing for that. And, and as I say, a lot of people are doing that. What you're talking about there is really all the technology is is heading in the right de- direction. It's really making sure what we're doing in the security space actually keeps up with that. So security is a big part of the solution. And we need to make sure that the security technology keeps pace with the other technology areas. Otherwise, you, you, you end up with a, a really good solution that's that's not secure. Yeah, and also there's a crossover. So we call these sort of socio-technical problems. We see this a lot in security. A discussion I was in recently in a government department was about what happens if uh, somebody grabs the steering wheel of a bus, for example. Should that bus respond and where there's a driver involved as well? But obviously driver incapacitation is a genuine problem. And maybe you want somebody to be able to to take over where the driver has a heart attack or something like that. So my concern, and this will just have to happen organically, is that we will have to go through that process of looking at those different types of challenges that we face in the in the human space and just to try to deal with them as they come. But we, I don't think we're going to deal with those in the committee, to be honest with you. Those sort of things are the real corner cases. Kind of what you're saying is if we get things to a point where we're covering 99.99% of all eventualities, there's still going to be the the odd weird corner case that's that's going to catch us out. But. Yeah, and ultimately, if you lay it up against existing accidents, for example, if we're blunt about it, do the corner cases, are they less than the current number of accidents that, that cause deaths and serious injury? And so is there a net benefit from that? And I, and I would probably argue that there probably is. But, but of course, those corner cases are things that we need to take seriously. But yeah, we'll have to see how it goes. Yes, we look forward to the next 10 years then. I think <laughs> it's either either get on a rocket to Mars or uh, or have a self-driving car. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Okay, so it's been great talking to you today. I've got no more questions really from my side. I think we've covered a, a huge amount of the whole market and technology space around security. Is there anything else you want to add or educate us on? 
Well, I was just thinking, actually, so I'm, I'm, I've got to go and do some sim racing practice for a race on Tuesday. <laughs> and um, what's interesting, actually, is this sort of concept of digital twins and this sort of mixing of reality and virtual. So a lot of companies are using digital twins right now uh, to try to create sort of replicas of the real world. But what you see, actually, the advancements are happening in the gaming world. And what we're seeing, particularly in the esports community, is real-world drivers using simulators, using games to practice on, laser map circuits and so on. And we're seeing a raft of really, really good racing drivers going into the real-world racing team and immediately winning, winning races. And I think this is really something that we should be looking at because this sort of mixed reality, as it were, of people in simulators, maybe even driving a real car on a real track. I think this also gives us some insight into the future as to how technology will look in general. And uh, it's a really quite exciting space at the moment. Yeah, I mean, and that, that brings an interesting point. So, I mean, we recently, Siemens and Copperhorse recently had a, a stand at the IoT Solutions World Congress, and you were kind enough to to bring along the secure CAV demonstrator, so the full driving rig and simulator, which is essentially what you're talking about. It's the digital twin of a vehicle where we can apply different types of security attacks. For a lot of people, it looked like just a big gaming rig. So they were quite amazed that, okay, once you get into this thing, yeah, it's great to drive around the circuit, but actually we're doing a lot of simulation and applying different faults and attacks and so, like I said, there is a massive crossover between those domains. And, the, and like I say, a lot of the technology is coming from the gaming world to support that. Yeah, what a lot of people don't realize is actually, yeah, I'm, I'm racing my, my rig. It has a real car network on it. I have been tempted, actually, to open that up to, for people to, because as you know, Lee, on our hacking rig, we, we, can, we have some controls where you can remove the brakes and things like that. So quite, you can experience this emotion rig and you can actually experience those hacks in real time. So to have that, have that sort of fear of that in the middle of a race, and anybody, so we were thinking about setting something up where they could donate to charity and then have one go at just destroying <laughs> the race. But yeah, it's really incredible. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it. And also, you know, for, for testing, for example, if you think how much, you know, safety risk is involved in testing a real car for cybersecurity attacks, you know, you're slamming on the brakes on a, on a circuit in real life is quite dangerous. But we can emulate that with a simulator. One of the big points that come out of the secure cav demonstrator is a lot of the test rigs that the automotive manufacturers and the oems use today are very static so they're, they're still testing the various components of the vehicle but in in a very static way whereas the test rig that you put together with the, the siemens technology in and the real cam bus it's an interactive test rig so you can actually get in and drive drive the vehicle experience all the the issues and the security attacks and like you say in real life and i know we had great fun at the the iot conference because you'd get people in the driving seat and there was one particular corner on the course where if you took their brakes away they would go straight through the fence and into the tree so and like you say that gives people the real kind of hands-on experience of what the, what the outcome of these tax would be like if they were in, in, a, in a real vehicle. So we, we, we hope to continue to develop that technology and take that concept further. From a Siemens perspective, the embedded analytics technology is, 
is is going forwards leaps and bounds and and so so hopefully uh we'll we'll continue to work on that and uh have further collaboration in the future yeah and um yeah it's just super super interesting i think this whole subject domain for anybody who wants to get into car security now is a really good time absolutely the oems really need the help we haven't got enough people in general in cybersecurity, but this is one of those areas that in all aspects whether whether you're into motorsports because they really need cybersecurity as much as anyone else or if you're into trucks or buses there's there's it's all there waiting for you yeah yeah it doesn't just stop at cars it's uh it's, it's everywhere Thanks, David. Thanks for your time. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks, Lee.